um, a Bible with you or a smartphone, some device that you'll be looking at the text. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Um, if you haven't been with us much, we tend to preach um, straight through books of Scripture. Um, and so we started Colossians just a couple weeks ago, and we'll spend the next um, couple months working our way through this letter. Um, it's just a brief means of recap. Um, the letter to the church at Colossae um, is written by Paul from prison, um, most likely in, in the early 60s, somewhere between 60 and 62 um, A.D. Um, this is interesting enough, um, a church that he did not plant. Um, he is kind of a grandfather to this church, um, someone that he led to the Lord Epaphras, went back to his hometown, and planted this church. And so he is writing um, really more as an apostle even than pastor here, but is ministering to them, is encouraging them. Um, there is a lot to be proud of in this church. Um, the church is probably less than 10 years old. It's a young church. And interesting, it's actually a, not... Colossae is not an impressive town. Although it was on a major byway, it's kind of an unassuming place that's waning in significance. Um, but because of the highway, it's got a lot of diversity that comes through, a lot of teaching that has crept in. And so one of the primary things that he's doing in this letter is he's going to be combating some false teaching um, that, is, that is prevalent in the community. Um, but this morning, before we jump into Colossians 1, um, I, I just kind of want to start with this idea that as we um, come in this morning, now we know that the world over the last couple of years is just in a, a bit of a state of upheaval. Um, it's not that it wasn't prior to that. We're just maybe a little more aware of it right now, right? That we, we sense it, we feel it. That there's even if we were to take a quick um, poll of the room, there's just some heaviness, right? There's some lament, there's some um, sadness that weighs on a lot of us. And that is interspersed with, with joy as well, um, as, as with babies, with, with relationships, with, with jobs, with things going on that are going well, that it's just kind of the mix of life that we have, right? That sometimes we're more aware of the positive, sometimes we're more aware of the negative, but right now, as kind of a communal people, that we're just very aware of some of the difficulty and hardship that are taking place. Um, that it, besides the grief and lament, right, there's, there's kind of uncertainty, there's fear, the ground can feel a little bit shaky right now. We see turmoil and division and dissension and rage. And the psalmist in Psalm 2 writes this in the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I feel like the psalmist just kind of captures this idea that we, we sense right now that there's just turmoil and there's upheaval and people are ra ra raising an angry, raging fist before the Lord in a lot of arenas of life. Even the church in Colossae, right, is having false teachers in their midst. Um, somewhere right around this, we're not sure if the letter has arrived before or after, but a major earthquake, if you want to talk about unsteady ground, a major earthquake actually wipes out the city of Colossae. Um, and so they're in a region that was known for earthquakes. And so as we began chapter 1, the last couple of weeks, we ended last week in verses, um, and, and the end of verse 14. And I want to reread 12 through 14 for just a moment. We see this. He's writing, he says, I want you to give thanks to the Father 
who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Like this just big, powerful kind of anthem that we've been transferred from this place that we could not get out of. We've been given redemption that Jesus has done the work. And if you skip forward to verse 21, as he continues to write, he goes, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So we have kind of this anthem, this idea that we've been pulled out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, that we're reminded at the end of this section that we were like hostile to God, that we were in the domain of darkness. We needed rescue, we needed redemption, we needed to be moved from one kingdom to the other. And yet one of the common themes of chapter 1 has been this idea of hope, right? That we, are, we have hope in the gospel, we have an inheritance in the gospel, we have this hope in heaven, and he's writing to a people who are facing false teaching, he's writing to a people who are under um, the government of Rome, which is not the best place to be in history. And so even though we are some 2,000 years removed from this letter, we understand that some of the, the, the shaky ground that they're on, the difficulty that they're facing is not all that different from maybe the circumstances of the world today, right? Like that we sense this same shakiness, this same need for hope and for inheritance and for security, something to be rooted in. And so we skipped a section that is where we're actually going to focus in this morning. Because what he's going to do, how he's going to root us in and, and to not take for granted that we have been moved from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, is he's going to have us just hone in on Jesus. So look at him. So this is the most familiar passage in all of um, Colossians. Let's begin in verse 15. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell." and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so what we see is this, this kind of flowery, big, bold creed or poem that Paul immediately moves into saying, listen, here's what's happened. You were in need of it, and here's who did it. Right? And he's lifting our eyes to look at Jesus. And what you think you know of him, he's more than that. He's more significant than that. There's, there's another nook, there's another cranny, there's another facet of his character to consider. Right? Like he's saying, don't, don't yawn at the fact that you've left the domain of darkness and entered the kingdom of light. Not by your merit, but by Jesus. I want you to, I want you to see him and to consider him and meditate on him. And so the danger in a passage like this is that we can see this kind of big flowery thing 
and then we can detail it to death and kind of lose the weight and the feel and the significance of it. But I want us to spend some time this morning looking at it um, and, and hopefully not, not butchering it to the point where you, we leave without this sense of, of awe and marvel at who Jesus is. This is really going to be Paul's kind of opening salvo against the false teachers. And it's going to be the thing that he's going to continue to come back to as we look at the life of a believer in the midst of difficulty. He's going to continue to come back to this kind of five-verse section and have us connect back to Jesus and who He is and what He's done. In verses 15, 16, and 17, we can kind of break the poem up into two halves. The first is simply this, that Jesus is the center of the universe. Right? He's the center of the universe. We can look in verse 15. He says, He is the image of the invisible God. This idea of the image of God should immediately kind of take our hearts back to Genesis 1. Right? That, that mankind, Adam and Eve, all of us, humanity was created in the image of God. Right? That we would reflect Him. That we would show the world His characteristics. His significance. His holiness. It's not that we individually look like Him. It's that we are bearing His image. We are looking, um, we are showing His character to the world. And so Jesus Himself, it says, is the image of the invisible God. When you have that question of like, I don't, I can't see God. I don't know if I, if I can trust something that I can't see. Can I put faith in it? He's saying if you want to see God, you look at Jesus. You put your eyes on Jesus. That He is God in the flesh. He is the image of of the invisible God. This is also um, just kind of a subtle knock at Rome, right? Um, Rome likes to put the image of their emperor on everything um, to remind people of who they should show their loyalty to, their devotion to, who they should give worship to. And he's saying, listen, we don't have to mark God on money or on the wall or on a banner. Right? We, we have Jesus who has walked in the flesh and He is the image of of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews says it like this in chapter 1, verse 3. He, meaning Jesus once again, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right, Just this idea of like, I want you to see God. Right? I want you to have this lofty view here of His character, of His attributes. It's in the life of Jesus. He goes on. He's not only the image of the invisible God, He's the firstborn of all creation. Now listen, that phrase has caused a lot of concern over history. The firstborn, wait a second, you mean Jesus was created, like He was the first act of creation potentially. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying Firstborn as in temporal order. Firstborn um, in Scripture, often what it means is not just saying, hey, this is the firstborn child. It is a, it's a phrase of dignity, of worth, of value. It is showing a role that has been bestowed. We can see this in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Uh, when we're talking about the nation of Israel. Listen to how this is says. He says in verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Right? Now Israel is talking about a nation here. He's saying this is a nation that has esteem and worth and value 
because I've given it so. Like I'm saying, not that they're the first nation of the world. This is my firstborn. I've given them a role and a relationship here. They're mine. In Psalm 89, as it's talking about David, God says of David, I'll make him the firstborn of kings. David wasn't the first king. Saul was. And that was only in Israel. So what we see is this phrase, firstborn, does not mean first in like temporal order, but it's first in significance, first in weight, in value. Um, that it's, it, so he is saying, he is the firstborn of all creation. And we can continue in verse 16 and see that he's not saying that Jesus was created. Look at verse 16. For by him, right, Paul immediately qualifies what he's saying. He has dignity. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, for him. Right? He's reminding us like Jesus is the creator. He's not a created being. He is the creator. And things were made by him, through him, for him. So he has this value and this, this dignity, and he is our creator. He existed before creation. Church, even this morning, as you think about the diversity that we have in creation, right, like that we give thanks to Jesus for that. Like that he has created things for us to enjoy and to savor and to see in relationships, right? In languages, in food, in landscape, in, in wildlife, in weather, right? And all these things that we can look at and say, like, Jesus, thank you that you have created uniqueness and diversity and things for us to, to enjoy and to have. You did it. You have given it to us. You are our Creator. What's going on here is Paul is, is, like I said, we're going to keep coming back to this as we work through the letter of Colossians. But some of the false teaching was saying this, hey, yeah, Jesus is good and all, but if you want the ultimate spiritual experience, you're going to have to go outside of Jesus. Like, don't, don't leave Jesus, but you're going to need more to experience, more to have, more to go to, more to do. And what he's saying is, listen, he's created it all, including the thrones, the dominions, the rulers, the authorities, visible and invisible. He's saying, he's made it all. So where exactly are you going to go to that you're going to find more than him? Like there are spiritual experiences out there, but not in a way that supersedes Jesus. He is the end all and be all because he created it. He is the Lord of it. And everything is under him because he is creator. He is the image of God. Verse 17, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This morning we, we, we talk about the fact that the Spirit of God is among us, right? That Jesus is alive and on His throne, right? Awaiting His return where He will split the sky. And so we sing knowing that our King hears us. It's not just bouncing off the walls. We pray knowing that we're being heard and received by a King who knows us and loves us, and intercedes on our behalf. But not only that, like He quite literally is holding everything together. Like Each of us are taking our next breath because Jesus says so. Right? Like the Gravity is holding us here because Jesus says so. Right? Like there's not epic weather right now. 
Because Jesus says so. Like that all things are held together by Him. And I think sometimes, right, we, we've talked about, do we see Jesus as big or do we see Jesus as little? And there, there are aspects of, of intimacy that we have with Jesus that right, we, we can look at Him as brother, but we cannot forget that He is God. That he is massive. That He holds all things together. I was thinking even this week, um, I was trying to do a little bit of work from home, which was foolish. Um, but in the midst of that, I had three children of a variety of ages and a variety of persistence who had things they needed me to do in that moment, right? Things they needed to ask, things they wanted to do, and they can be persistent, right? It's not a, hey, one request, data. I'm going to respect the fact that you're doing this, and I'll be back to see you in a little bit, right? It's, it's not how, how it works. And, and after a while, like, I, I don't mind the request. Sometimes the persistence of the request can get a little wearisome, right? And, and I had this thought as I'm, like, I was literally getting frustrated and trying to decide, like, man, if I could just have five minutes and we can do all the things you're asking. And it, just this, like, flashing thought came across my mind. And, like, the Lord hears the request of His children persistently and faithfully and is glad to hear them, is glad to receive them, is glad to respond to them, and is not overwhelmed by them. Right? Like, like I, I don't think I'm a bad dad. But man, I'm not that. Like, I'm not. Like, I have to work to not be aggravated with people that I love tremendously. And yet here is the God of the universe sustaining and holding all things together, and He's not sweating. Right? He's not weary. He's not barely holding on. Like, would we just settle and rest and allow our souls to breathe this morning that He's in control. And we can trust Him. We don't have to be. Right? That our, that our health are, is in His hands. Our life is in His hands. Our future is in His hands. And that He is good. And that He is faithful. That all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. Beautiful. So, Jesus is the center of the universe. And then in the second half of this, Jesus is the center of the church. He, he takes from going and looking at this kind of cosmic level, and he begins to, to, to kind of come in a little bit, narrow the focus, and look at the fact that Jesus is also the center of the church. Look at verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, and in everything he might be preeminent. Just this first idea that he is the head of the church, right? Like, without your head, you're not doing a lot. You're not breathing. You're not making decisions. Like, he is the head. He's not simply a part. He is the head of the church, of his new creation. This beautiful, simple metaphor that reminds us, listen, Pastors are not in charge, right? Authorities and politics. Like Jesus is in charge. He is the one leading and guiding. He is the shepherd of this body, and we are simply under shepherds as to what He is doing. He is the body. He is sorry. He is the head of the body. Paul continues. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. So we have this firstborn again, right? And so if you were doubtful of what Paul was saying in the first half, that it's simply a title of significance, then we can be reminded here, listen, Jesus isn't the first person that was resurrected. He actually had resurrected people in his ministry, right? So it's not saying Jesus is the first one that ever tasted death and came back to life. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying his is supreme, it is significant, it is different. His is the ultimate resurrection because it accomplishes something on our behalf. Other resurrections were simply this foretaste that something good is coming. Someone has power of life over death, and yet then in the resurrection of Jesus, we find a resurrection that impacts us, that matters for us, that we don't just go, man, good for you, still going to die but a resurrection that has an impact on our life and on our eternity. Right? We're beginning to get a little more insight into this idea of domain of darkness, that Jesus, in His death that was sacrificial on our behalf, enters right, the domain of darkness to transfer us out into the kingdom of light. Listen to what um, we, Luke says in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. This short phrase that I apparently didn't mark. He says this, speaking of Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Right? So it's not just that Jesus comes back, like He loosens the pangs of death. Like their, their strength and their control are now loosened. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will write to the church in Corinth, right, sting has lost, it's like death has lost its sting. Because in the death of Jesus was the death of death. Like His resurrection is different. His death is different. It accomplishes a work. It satisfies something. And so it is the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn resurrection, that we are rescued. Like that His resurrection means we can be resurrected. Because He did not stay dead, right? That when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That there will be a day for those who are in Christ that their faith will become sight. That they will see the resurrected Jesus for the rest of eternity. Paul has experienced this on the road to Damascus. He, was, he saw the resurrected Jesus. And so he's saying this resurrection, it matters because now it's hope for our life, for, for us, that we don't have to fear death any longer. And that, that would have been a practical implication for someone living under Rome, especially a guy like Nero, who liked to kill Christians. In church, death has lost its sting because death isn't the end any longer. Resurrection, how do we know? Because of Jesus, of His resurrection, that has given us the right to be resurrected with Him, to not fear death, to to lose its sting. Now listen, folks, that doesn't mean that we see death flippantly. Life has value because we're created in the image of God. And so life has value, and we fight for that. And we give it value. Right? We, don't, we don't run looking for death. But we trust the giver of life 
right? That we don't have to fear the authorities in this world that would threaten to take our life. Because death doesn't get the final say. Jesus does. He holds all things together. He's in control. He's the firstborn. He's the image of God. And for those who are in Him, death is simply the door to eternity with Him. We don't fear it. He continues. Not only is He the head of the body of the church, He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Listen to verse 19. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This idea of, of, we saw initially in the Old Testament of the tabernacle, right? This this structure that could be packed up and, and moved along with the people where right, they could see, hey, God is dwelling with us in our midst. There He is. Can't touch it. Can't get too close to it. But it, it's there. God's with us. And then a, a permanent temple was built, right? And the, and the presence of God dwelt among His people. And then we go to John 1. It says that Jesus, says that when He came, He tabernacled. He dwelled with His people. It was God in the flesh, walking among His people, the glory of God in our midst. That we could see God, that they could touch Him, sit with Him. So then we begin to see His life lived that we were supposed to live. Right? Because we were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He lives that life in perfect obedience and faithfulness so that His death could be substitutionary. And so that His resurrection right, would be a promise and a hope and a down payment that would give us anchoring in an unstable world. That we are secure and rooted. He continues, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. When he says to reconcile all things, again, this can be a stumbling block for some that would go, oh, so it's universalism, right? Like, all things will eventually be reconciled to him. That's not what Scripture teaches. Just to give a couple of of verses here, one would be in 2 Thessalonians. Let me turn over there. Chapter 1, verse 9. Paul writes this, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Right? Like there's judgment that's coming. And not everyone is going to be in the kingdom. Some will be remain right in the domain of darkness. Jesus Himself talks of this. If we turn to Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse... Uh, 46, Matthew 25. And he says this, and, the, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He's saying like there are two groups, those who will be with him and those who will be away from him. So why is Paul able to say that he is through him to reconcile to himself all things in Colossians 1.20, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. When we know that there is hell, there is an outer darkness that some will be sent to. The idea is here is what He's saying 
is there is going to be a time where all rebellion will be gone. There is going to be a new creation. And there will be no stench of sin or deceit or rebellion. That all who are there will be reconciled. All who are there will be secure. All who are there will be for King Jesus. Because when He splits the sky, every knee is going to bow. Right? And some will bow willingly, worshipfully, rejoicing. Others will bow saying, we, we were wrong. And they'll be banished right? to eternal punishment, to the outer darkness. And then creation will be restored and made right and reconciled. And so we, we understand that the word all does not have to mean all. Because you could set up on Thanksgiving and you say, is everyone here? Are we all here? And you don't mean is all of humanity here. You mean is everyone who was expected here. Right? That all can be a, a smaller subset. And so he's saying that those who trust and treasure and follow through Him, He is reconciling to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, because it's not just humanity that needs redemption, that needs reconciliation. If we turn to Romans chapter 8, we know that when sin entered the world, that things were broken. Not just our relationship with God, not just our relationship with one another. Creation itself was broken. So we have horrible weather and storms. We have sickness and disease. And here's how Paul writes this in, in Romans 8, beginning in verse 19. For creation waits with eager longings for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Right? That create creation, like the world is groaning, going, we know what it was like. We felt, we saw harmony and perfection. And our Creator has promised today where that will once again be the case where there will be a new heavens, a new earth, redeemed and restored for us to enjoy for all time. Creation is groaning and longing for that. And so he's saying, Jesus is the one who holds all things together. He's the one who's going to reconcile His people to Himself and redeem and restore creation. How? By making peace by the blood of the cross. And it was His death it has restored us. It has reconciled us. It has given us peace. Once we were hostile, once we were doing evil deeds, once we were opposed to God, and now we're at peace with God because we trust that Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection are sufficient for us to give us peace with God. And He has done it. This One who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of the dead. Peter writes this. This is 2 Peter chapter 3. Thinking of the future. Verse 13. But according to His promise, we are awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right? It will no longer have rebellion. It will no longer be broken. It will no longer be full of sin. It will be what God intended and it will be that way for all time. 
We get a picture and a glimpse of that in Revelation 21 where it talks about that every tear will be dried because there will be no more death and no more mourning and no more sickness and no more sadness because we will be with King Jesus. Our faith will be sight and we will see it forever for all time because it's all His. Church, here's what this means for us this morning. Here's what Paul is, is writing to a group who are hearing some divergent claims. Jesus is making a claim of exclusivity. He's saying, it's me. John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? Like this morning, we have to determine Jesus is either who He said He is, and it means He's the only way, or Jesus doesn't need to be considered anymore because He claimed to be the only way, and we can consider some of the other gods. Right? Like, Sometimes we go, well, I want to take a little bit of Jesus. I want to take a little bit of that and add it. He goes, Jesus doesn't give you the option to take that. It's all of Him or it's none of Him. There is no little bit of Jesus. The, when, the, when the Pharisees right, and the religious leaders are talking to Jesus and asking Him this, right, He doesn't say, well, you know, do with me what you want. Think about me how you want to think about me. They, they're talking to Him. This is John 8. And he says this in verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. Right? Like They knew in that moment, it's either Jesus or it's not Jesus. Because what he's saying is, before Abraham, before the father of your faith, I am the one who holds it all together. I am king. I am creator. I am sustainer. I am the image of the invisible God. So take me or reject me. But you only get one or the other. You don't get a part of me. It's all or it's nothing. He is not just one of those claiming salvation. He is saying He has the only way. And so we don't get to say, what is God to me? What is God? Jesus. We want to know His character and His attributes. We go to Scripture and we find Jesus. It's Him. And so if it's true, if it's true, then we bow a knee. All of life comes under His Lordship and under His reign because He's the Creator, the Savior, the Sustainer, the Reconciler, the Redeemer. And it means, church, this, that like the church at Colossae, we can live in a hostile world as well, in peace. Because what can they do to us? What can this world do to us? Nothing. Because the one who holds it together also has us in his hand. And so we can live in peace in the midst of uncertain times and difficult circumstances and, and, and hostile leadership because our destiny in this life is not affected by the world. And it's held by the one who holds all things together. And so we can be rooted in hope. 
Church in Colossae could be rooted in hope whether earthquakes came or didn't, whether false teachers came or didn't, because His promises will be kept. The resurrection is proof of that. The gift of the Spirit is a down payment towards that. And so my encouragement to you this week would be to, to look at these five verses and to meditate on them, to consider them, to think about them, to let them soak in, see the bigness and the glory of Jesus, that we would marvel at Him and not think, yeah, yeah, He's all right. I know Him. That we would marvel at Him. Listen, here's where we're going in the rest of Colossians. Paul is now going to take the implications of life in all the different circumstances, in all the different situations, anchoring it back to this passage and say, and now thus, here's how we live. Here's how we honor. Here's how we please. Here's how we worship. Here's how we handle. Anchored in this. Let's hold up Jesus and see Him as everything that we need. And we'll move forward in the weeks to come in the implications for our life. So listen, I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come back up and we get to sing to this Jesus. Right? Like this Jesus is alive hearing our praise this morning. Holding us together so that we can get sound out whether it's pretty or not. Right? Like that we can sing to this Jesus this morning. During the next three songs, we have the Lord's Supper set up. That you are free as an individual or as a family or a friend. At any point, you can get up and move to the back of the room where there is um, juice and bread, right, representing Jesus' blood and His body that were spilt and beaten and broken on our behalf. It's what has reconciled us. It's what has given us peace with God. It's why we are no longer enemies to Him, but called friends, called sons and daughters, that Jesus is sufficient for our salvation. He is enough. And this morning, we don't hold up tithing or church attendance or moral behavior or a voting record or nationality or any of that and say, this is why Jesus accepts me. Jesus accepts us because of His life his death, and his resurrection. And so we go to the cup as believers, and believers only, remembering why we are secure this morning, why we have hope, and why we have an inheritance. Um, let me pray for us, and we'll enter a time of worship and response to Jesus. Father, would you protect our hearts and our eyes and our minds God, from being indifferent to You. God, of thinking we just know You and taking You for granted. God, give us eyes to see Your bigness, Your significance. God, for those who don't yet know You, God, would they hear You calling and know that You've done the work. So no matter how far away they are, no matter what they've done, that grace and peace and mercy and forgiveness are there because of You, not because of them. God, for those of us who have walked with You for a while, God, would we not ever become humdrum or blasé about it, but that we would worship and bow a knee in every area of life to King Jesus, who is worthy of all of our life, of all of our worship, because we have been taken out of the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light, to be called sons and daughters of the King, feasting at Your table without money, you love us. Lord, would you speak this morning? 
you bring conviction of sin? Would you bring hope? Would you bring peace? Would you bring encouragement? Would you move among your people? And would we respond accordingly? In Jesus' name.